Barney's doesn't guarantee success. Vogue doesn't guarantee success. What guarantees success is if you actually find an audience that actually loves your product. We've been very slow to change in terms of how technology has impacted our lives. A new social network can pop up overnight and completely change our business model. Hello and welcome to the Glossy Podcast, our weekly show where we discuss fashion, luxury, and technology with the people making change happen. I'm your host, Hilary Milnes, and in today's episode, Aaron Sanandres, the CEO of Untuck It, joined us live at the NRF Big Show in January to discuss Untuck It's Amazon strategy, how the brand has navigated expansion into new categories, and the evolving menswear industry. Hope you enjoy it. We're live at the NRF Big Show. Hi, Aaron. Hi, Hillary. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thanks for sitting down. I know it's, it's you're probably super busy. Uh, so tell me a little bit about what you've been doing at the conference so far. Uh, trends you're hearing. What's top of mind, do you think, for everyone in the room today? So there are a lot of people yeah. in the room. <laughs> yes. There are a lot of things that are top of mind. Um, I think for for some of the digitally native brands, such as, my, like, uh, such as Untucket, that have been growing physical retail presence, um, they're probably interested in things like fulfillment centers and point of service solutions mm-hmm. that are going to enable them to really scale from an omni perspective. Right. It's it's really getting into the the nitty gritty of what makes a modern retail foundation for for new companies. And it feels like do you, when you're in the room as a brand like Untuck It, obviously we've heard from a wide variety of retailers from Kroger to Target. Do you feel like there's a bigger presence of brands like that have similar backgrounds as yours this year? Well, I think maybe they're getting more attention, mm-hmm. but there there has certainly been a group of digitally native brands that have ventured into physical retail. And, right. and they've done that. I think the ones that have gotten maybe more of the attention are the ones that are doing that at, at larger scales. Mm-hmm. And so like the Casper is announcing they're opening 200 stores right. and, and Warby Parker opening stores at, you know, at a clip that's faster than us. And we opened a ton of stores, right? Uh, we opened 25 stores last year. Mm-hmm which we basically doubled in size. We went from 25 to 50. So there definitely is this, and it's not a playbook because I think retailers think about the different channels um, differently. And so, you know, for example, traditional retailers are now moving to, to an online presence. Online retailers, maybe physical makes sense for, for a lot of them. It certainly made sense for us. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know if it's if it's necessarily a page out of everybody's kind of growth platform. Right, right. I mean, we're definitely hearing about it so much. So tell us a little bit about Untucket's background. Uh, whenever the brand was founded, was physical retail in the playbook? Uh, or how, where did that come into the picture? So, okay, so I'll take you back. So we started Untucket with the kind of vision of providing a better looking casual shirt, mm-hmm. right? That's how we started. Um, we initially thought that we were going to be uh, marketing to millennials. That's who we thought our customers were going to be. We had a fairly uh, good sense of confidence that there was going to be a demand for a just a better looking casual shirt. Mm-hmm. What we didn't realize is that we hit a extremely broad like demographic and we struck a chord with an extremely broad demographic. And so the challenge for us had always been how do we cater to to such a, a broad demo how, from a marketing perspective, from a communications perspective, without necessarily diluting kind of who we are as a core? Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing that we learned across that demo were that there were people who just didn't engage with brands online unless they had physical footprint. Right. Right. Either it was because of some sort of inherent skepticism of what just digitally you know native brands are, mm-hmm. um, and you know sometimes it was I want to touch feel, I want to try the shirt on or try the you know, touch the product before I actually have 
have to purchase it. So we knew early on we had to have some sort of physical outlet for this kind of cohort. And again, there were certain, it's not the same when it comes to people who want to touch. I think generally an older cohort wants to, to touch and feel and, and talk to somebody. Mm -hmm. But we're surprised that, you know, how, how demo agnostic that shopping behavior is. Um, just because our demo is 25 to 65, you know, fairly uniformly distributed across right. across that, that age range. So, so all of these customers are shopping both online and in stores. A lot of the customers are shopping online. Uh -huh. um, the the point of entry being stores just depends on the number Where of stores that we have, mm -hmm. right? So. If you were shopping in 2015, you only had one store op, you know, option for you. So anywhere in the U.S. other than maybe New York City, you know, people were predominantly shopping online. I think now we've got far more outlets out there from a retail perspective. And so you are seeing the behavior of people cross-channel shopping, right. which is the behavior you want, right? As a brand, and this is true, right? This held true in my, my consulting days about cross-line of service clients versus just single-channel clients. They're just worth more. Mm -hmm. um, and it's no different for us uh, in a retail perspective. If we think about the customer profile of somebody who shopped in a retail store and online right. versus the customer profile of a repeat buyer who's only shopped single channel, whether mm -hmm. it's retail, retail or online, online. Um, they're just worth more, they spend more, they're happier, they have higher NPS scores, they've got li higher lifetime values, they engage more with the brand. And so we saw this early on and it was a matter of how do we continue to, to kind of channel that behavior, bringing somebody in, whether it's online or whether it's retail store first, but then to bring them across channel and have them shop and really think about it from an Omni perspective. Right, and I, and I think it speaks to the idea that stores double today as basically marketing and, and brand awareness levers for online brands and because you know, someone who may have never interacted with the brand online walks by, they see the name. Um, so how, when you look at your store opening strategy, how would you say it's, it's different for a brand like Untuck It than it would have been had you started the brand 20, 30 years ago? What goes into those decisions now because of what you know about your customer? Oh, it's a good, it's a, it's a good question. So the, I think cadence would have slowed tremendously. 20 to 30 years ago in kind of the height of, of physical apparel, if that was the height, let me do my math, let's just pretend it was. Um, 20 years ago, it was almost, it was 1999. Yeah, right, so, so <laughs> online was small, so physical by just definition, let's mm -hmm. just say it was like back in the heyday. Mm -hmm. um, we wouldn't have been able to expand as rapidly as we have been doing, just, just from a paycheck perspective, right? I think what we got this time around in terms of tenant allowance and partnership um, from our landlords, I don't think I would have expected as a company who's just you know opening their first store, mm -hmm. series of five stores, 20 or 30 years ago. Right. Um, but what would change more fundamentally is knowing, like 20 years ago, knowing who's coming into our store versus this, you know, in today's day and age, knowing who's walking into our stores. So I think mm -hmm. the amount of customer data that we have, just having gone online first, where we've managed that and curated it and been focused on collecting it, to an offline presence where that data is still important to us. So we need to find out a way to channel that data through to store associates and capture data in store and make sure it gets stitched and pieced together so we can see kind of a more holistic view of how marketing's working. Right, so because to your point, a lot of people who are shopping online do want to, or they will shop in stores, you know, if it's there, if it's convenient. And so when you have both pieces working together, you have a bigger picture of 
how the customer behaves, who they are, what they want to buy, what they don't want to buy. How do you then build basically a feedback loop that serves the overall business? Because I think, you know, the reason that we have legacy retailers in the position that they are is because they built their stores and then they had to kind of build e-commerce alongside of it. And now they're just kind of realizing, okay, this has to work a lot more seamlessly together as one fluid company. It's the same, it's the same business and we can't have these silos. And so now that you're starting, you know, these stores alongside the online business, how do you sort of take what you learn about the customers in store, feed it back online, take what's performing online, do that in stores? And so, make it work. So there's two things, right? So the, there's the feedback, like how does our merch team know what's transacting in stores and what's transacting online? Mm -hmm. um, and today we're, we're pretty good at collecting all that information and dumping it into you know, one data warehouse, Snowflake. So from a merch perspective, some of that stuff's pretty easy where they can see what's selling out in stores so they know to stack um, our Dallas store with more sports coats because they're selling through higher online. And so there's a lot of, of learnings that we can take our, from our online business and kind of apply to store. Mm -hmm. um, having a fuller picture of your customer in store is something that you just haven't had the ability to do in the past, right? right. So that's something now as you're, you're building out these, these point of sale platforms that are able to tell you, Hillary, you shopped in these five stores, this online, and it brings it to the customer and the customer, the store associate. Store Associate can finally engage with you in a way that's that's personalized and curated, but not creepy because you know that they say, hey, Hillary, do you mind if I bring up your profile? They bring mm -hmm. it up and the the machine feeds out some curated recommendations if they need something to, to kind of talk to you about. Right. So I think what we're able to do with the 360 view of the customer today in store in terms of having a more personalized store experience than we have in the past, I think is exciting. I don't think there's been a ton of innovation around in-store personalization you know, over the past, I don't know, decade. Mm -hmm. um, I can tell you like there's been a ton online and you go online and if it says, if it doesn't say, hi Aaron, welcome back, I'm kind of disappointed that it really doesn't know who I am. Mm -hmm. But in store, you know, that isn't my expectation that every store associate across the, the global know that I shopped in a Ralph Lauren store right. in you know, 1998. Right. Um, so anyway, so I think there's some, some pretty exciting innovation that you have in terms of empowering store associates to get a better view of, of who you are and what you've shopped mm -hmm. um, to be able to do that in a fairly timely and a seamless manner is important. Right, and I think there's some disagreement for, for brands that are, that are young, digitally native brands like yourselves as to what role technology does actually play in the store. I think we hear so much about, you know, customer data in stores and then that, and that innovation, but then on the other hand, you hear just as much about experience and, you know, you can't just be a store for transactions. You have to give people a reason to come to the store and sometimes, you know, those two ideas kind of, you know, bounce off each other. They don't always mesh as easily. Do you think that there is a place in the stores for screens, for, you know, where does technology play a role versus experience? How does it all work together? So look, I think, I think ultimately you need to test what's right just from a store experience perspective. And that may be a brand that has to lean heavy into tech, they think. Mm -hmm. But the best thing about this data that we have today is you are able to test the store, right? You can test, you're not, you don't have to sign up for only one way to present yourself to the world. And right. I think that's the great thing about online, like things change all the time and they change quickly. Mm -hmm. So we can optimize and we can do what actually is resonating. And I don't think it's that different in a store. You can, you can open your store presenting yourself one way only to learn 
to to evolve and, and take into account customer feedback or, or store feedback and, mm -hmm. and just slightly tweak it. Right. I don't think you have to you have to make a kind of a binary choice. Yeah, and, and so what do you think has worked best for your customers? Is it less of a digital experience and more like you know the idea of come in and, and hang out and it's a comfortable experience? What do, what do well, your customers respond to? So our customers want an efficient experience first and foremost. Mm -hmm. So so that's the way we set up our stores. There's our inventories all in the back. Um, we've got a try on shirts. You come in, you get fitted, you find the shirt styles that you like. They get all the inventory in the back while you're shopping. You can sip on some scotch in the meantime or water. Um, but what we find is that's a very efficient experience and that's something that they like. They like the fact that you can sip bourbon where it's legal for us to distribute bourbon um, in the stores while they're shopping. Mm -hmm. So in terms of how it manifests itself, and I was going to circle back to that earlier, you were saying you have all this customer data. Well, that's ultimately your litmus test for whether what you're doing works or not, right? right. There's a couple of key metrics as, as as a just a, as a brand manager that I really really care about mm -hmm. in terms of my customers, I want to know if they're repeating, if they're returning, and I want to know if they're expanding categories mm -hmm. and when. And if there's any way that I can I can build more of that information, the fact is we we have all that data. So as you start to think about my store expansion strategies, does it work having all the inventory on the floor or not having the inventory on the floor? Well, guess what? I can test both in within a month. I can have two weeks of cohort data. I can look out 30 days and I can feel pretty good mm -hmm. that I can pinpoint like discernible differences. And going forward, I will change and I'll optimize to, to what works. So right. I think there's a lot of optimization you can do in stores if you have the data. The challenge, I think for any company, especially, and I'll call ourselves like digitally native have-nots, like we never mm -hmm. raised a ton of cash, so we never had like a ton of, of people mm -hmm. working for us. Like I think where you can ask, sorry, I think, we're fairly thinly um, resourced, mm -hmm. and that's just part of our DNA, but there is so much data that's not getting analyzed right now, mm -hmm. and look, even if I triple the number of employees that we have, and let's say we should be flushed with, with data analysts, there's still so much data that is left untouched, or mm -hmm. if it's less untouched, it's left like unactioned, mm -hmm. right? There's just no way that, that an organization can process, digest, and implement you know, that much data that quickly. Right. Um, and so for us, we just happen to take bite-sized, mm -hmm. you know, bits of know, what we can do. Yeah, know what you're looking for, know what you want to find out, and, and then And be willing to do something it about it, yeah, right. if, if it's important to you. Right, and yeah, it sounds like the biggest thing is to be flexible, be able to react, and know how to use the customer data when you when you need it. Know how to measure, yeah, I think that's, yeah. A, that's a huge thing. Look, any any digital company that that is selling on Facebook recognizes the importance of optimization and A-B testing. And you know all these things that were truly digitally like born terms when mm -hmm. it talks about like optimization of, of audiences and things right. like that that Facebook allows. But if you take that mindset and that framework, I think you can apply a lot of that to, to a physical footprint. Mm -hmm. And so you do see digitally native companies that are expanding, they are ones that'll do, you know, use a, a store camera tracker earlier, you know, rather than waiting. Like if I were a, a, a traditional retail business that had 500 stores, like it, I, I cannot imagine not having cameras in these stores to pick up some of the nuances and changes in, in traffic, just so we know what's going on at a right. basic level, right? right? Just, um, just like the foot traffic. Just you know, foot traffic and repeat and mm -hmm. demo, like there's, you can kind of, compound that, um, but there's there's just such good data that, that can be collected. It's just a matter of 
you know, making sure you have all these different inputs of data between your, your online platform, your physical store, your, you know, your camera platform. You just have to utilize that and, and clean it and make sure that it, it's presented in a way that you can, you can make application of conversion rates to foot traffic to maybe you know, what store associates are working. Right, and and so back to the idea of you know just being where your customers want to shop, whether that's online and in store. What about customers who shop multi-brand retailers? Is there a retail partner out there for an Untucket? So, it's it's a question we ask ourselves. I think at the start and finish of every year, mm -hmm. because at the start we say no, no, we don't need. It. At the end, we're like, ah, maybe we should. It would you know we could have generated a bit more revenue. It would have right. been great. Yeah, um, <laughs> never hurt. So yeah, no, and it's always hindsight, but. I think for us, the, the, the question is yes, or the answer, short answer is yes, I think there's absolutely a role for a multi-brand distributor for, for a company like Untucket. I think we think about that partnership maybe differently than we would have if this was our first physical kind of footprint. Mm -hmm. So if we were only online and now our first distribution outside of that is a, is a multi-brand distributor. So you know, we think maybe more strategically or surgically about where, what in-market fills we want to test in, mm -hmm. or what customer cohorts like we really want to expose ourselves to. Right. Um, so maybe I th there definitely is. It's just a question of, of mm -hmm. what capacity and where. Do they come knocking? They have. Yeah. No. No. We've had. Yeah. <laughs> so I would almost. Uh, yeah. We we've had we've had a, a number of conversations with with some of the, the, the players out there. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of interest, uh, as you, you'd expect, I think the, the question for us, again, we're, we're not ready, or at least we weren't ready in the fall of 2018 to commit spring right. of, of 2019. Mm -hmm. So now as we have these conversations, it's kind of fall, winter this year versus spring next. Right. We'll be right back. Can't get enough glossy in your day? Then be sure to check out our other show, The Glossy Beauty Podcast, where each week, Glossy's beauty editor Priya Rao sits down with leaders in the beauty and wellness industries. This week, she's joined by Shrankla Holacek, the founder and CEO of Uma Oils. In this episode, Shrankla discusses her deep roots to the Ayurveda traditions, how her company brings together luxury and wellness, and why navel oils just might be the next hot thing. You can find new episodes of the Glossy Beauty Podcast every Thursday on Glossy.co, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to subscribe and leave us any feedback you have. Now back to the episode. So it's in the cards. And so what do you think that a, that a brand today that, that has its online roots has, you know, it's almost like they have more power than, than they used to when it comes to conversations with a department store or an online multi-brand retailer. Um, whoever have you, but you know, where do you see, how does that partnership change today versus, you know, even last year, or the year before, like, do you think as you grow, as you do more on your own, you have, you can lay out the terms more. I think, you know, that's like the power dynamic has shifted. Oh, so if I were a, a digital startup engaging with a multi-brand distributor today versus me seven years from now. Yeah. Yeah. Today so, versus now or back then. Yeah. Seven so, years ago. No, so it, I think there's, there's an, an increased in demand, mm -hmm. right? So that, that bodes well for, for everybody. I think department stores, no different than malls, want to present exciting and new kind of retail opportunities. Mm -hmm. um, but they want, they want staying power. So that's where the malls might have a little less flexibility. They don't want one spot turning over three, four, five, six, seven times. It just doesn't look good for, for the mall. Right. Whereas like a company like Nordstrom's wouldn't mind trying out new new brands because why do you go to Nordstrom's? It brings right. people in, there's mm -hmm. exciting new stuff presented and and sold to you in a, a very, very 
uh, customer kind of centric and, and friendly fashion. So right. there's a lot of appeal. I think having more stores and owning your own distribution, if, if you were to choose between the two, yes, it's more complex and there's a lot of, of issues that you just don't need to deal with if you have a third party distributor. Mm -hmm. um, but I wouldn't give that up. Um, so if I had to make a choice, right? Like I, I could have A, I could have B, but I can't have a blend of both. Mm -hmm. I would rather own my stores and own less of them and know everything about my customer data than have my, my product being sold through a third party where I don't get any of that customer data. Right. Because if that's going to be a larger and larger part of my business, it has to inform my online business or else I'm kind of running blind. Right, you're right. So is that part of the conversation with um, a Nordstrom saying, okay, we were to do a partnership with you, we need to know who the Nordstrom Untucket customer is. Like, you know, it can't so, just be a black void. I think you're going to find that there's there's a spectrum that, that people provide. Um, and, and without assigning any one person or one company to, mm -hmm. to where it lies, you've got companies out there that say, absolutely, we will tell you what your customer is shopping. Not only that, we will tell you what it gets exchanged for. We will be as fully transparent and give to you as much data as we have in-house because that helps us better, better merchandise and, and know how to shop better. That's one. And on the other side, you get, and there, that's maybe some of the more, the, I'll call it more recent um, uh, multi-brand distributors. Mm -hmm. And then you have that very traditional view of guys we don't either, we can't, mm -hmm. or we won't, but I'm not sure they'll necessarily tell you which. Mm -hmm. um, we won't give you that level of data, right? It would be great if we did, but there's just too many brands and it would be too much reporting that would overload us, so we don't. Right. Um, and so I think if you're looking at, at third-party distribution, clearly one partner makes life a lot easier and, and the other partner um, just doesn't give you an opportunity to, to improve upon your business. Right, because just like the store, any sort of retail partnership would also function as a marketing channel. And so, Absolutely. so if you can't act on any of that customer behavior or insight, it's, you know, what's the... Well, it's a great, look, there's, there's, there's selling points, right? Being, being in, and, and pick the, the name, being in a Macy's or a Bloomingdale's or a Nordstrom's for, for a lot of brands is a very, it's a pinnacle moment because mm -hmm. you're being associated with that caliber of, of distributor. So, right. And that has value that carries over to, to kind of your online or your in-store presence. So there's a Still lot of value. Still to this day, you think? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, absolutely. I think there's, there's a, and, and maybe it, it changes by generation, but I will say like a generation X person will generally say, I saw something in Nordstrom's, look, they put good product in their store. Mm -hmm. Like there's a trust factor that I don't even think about when I pick something off the rack. Right. What about Amazon? Have they come knocking? Um, so we do sell on Amazon. Mm -hmm. um, it's not that they came knocking. We, we, we wound up using some of our, um, our broken styles or, or mm. kind of uh, last season items we would, we would put onto Amazon as, okay. a, as a way to use it a bit as an outlet. Um, we don't do anything material on Amazon as, as a company. So like new launches or new collections? No, no, no. Overall, that. Amazon is... 1%. Mm -hmm. Interesting. It's some, some very small. And is that third party on the third party selling marketplace rather than like a wholesale partnership? It would be on, no. So it wouldn't be the, th well, that's a good question. So we, we 
the, the relationship that we have with Amazon is they effectively, we pay them a fulfillment fee, I don't know, pick it $20 okay, yeah. per, mm -hmm. per store. So you go onto Amazon Prime, you search Untuck It, you'll find an Untuck It mm -hmm. store that's fulfilled for and managed by kind of Amazon. That's an interesting strategy. So this is like basically last season well, or it's enough to be to be interesting, and the, and the fortunate thing about our our business is that we're not seasonal. So when right. I say last season, it could be a black and white gingham that has a thicker line mm -hmm. than than this season's might look like. Um, so, so is it the stuff that's kind of like leftover inventory that would typically be marked down? That is it. So is it the is the pricing the same? So pricing's often the same, and mm -hmm. in fact, you, you just can't have anything that's less expensive on your site than on Amazon. So there's always pricing parity mm -hmm. uh, between the two sites. And look, it's it will be a a range of of product that our merch figures. Let's push through faster, put some of it on Amazon than we have in stores, um, and so generally driven by merchandising related decisions. But the goal is, look, we don't at this point want to be distributing through some of the other, what we'll call like um, real discount retailers who, who pick up excess inventory right. and sell them, you know, right. your Century 21s or your TJ Maxx. They're great companies. Um, they got a lot of great brands that sell to them. Fortunately, we've been able to manage inventory in a way that, that we just haven't had. To. Mm -hmm. And so, so Amazon is a tiny percent of sales, but having any presence on Amazon, does that put any sort of pressure on the logistical side of the Untuck It site in terms of shipping speed and No, um, look, it, it does. It raises the bar. Mm -hmm. and, and I think we, we've you know, kind of risen to the occasion. Our, our turnaround times from fulfillment, our, our re, like return rates and processing times are competitive mm -hmm. um, with Amazon. So, yeah. so our customer would be seamless. Ordering on Amazon versus ordering on Untuck It. We don't have same-day delivery like Amazon Prime does. Mm -hmm. I think very few companies do. Right. Um, but we're, we're able to, to make sure that we can kind of mirror the same experience and expectations. Right. I'd, I'd be interested to hear because, you know, so many um, DTC brands look at, you know, keep Amazon like at the end of a 30-foot pole, like because they don't, they think that, you know, to sell there would undermine the relationship they have with their customer data, that you don't have that insight. Uh, what... But I also feel like on the other side, you hear constantly, or I hear constantly, brands have to have an Amazon strategy in some shape or form. Well, there's two different things. And I, I don't think people avoid it because their customers won't feel comfortable about the customer data. I think people avoid any meaningful, if, if they think they've got a lot of upside, people avoid any meaningful testing on Amazon. I would think perhaps under um, concern that mm. that would be flagged by Amazon Fashion, mm. who could right. very easily pick up a trend and, and make it their own. Mm -hmm. And so I would think, no, I've not, no one's told me that, but if I were to guess why people aren't, you know, might be hesitant leaning fully into Amazon, that might be one. But there's a flip side to that. I mean, the, the amount of exposure you get on Amazon is insane. Mm -hmm. The amount of people that pay with Amazon pay even on our own website. Right. So this is like, it just, there's a, a massive part of the buying market that will only buy on Amazon. Mm -hmm. And so I think people recognize that and those that choose to, to sell on Amazon are, look, they're doing the, the, the math themselves. They're doing it for a reason. They're making money. If they weren't making money or if they weren't happy, my guess is they probably wouldn't be doing it. Right. And, and can you see um, if there are a percentage of customers that come to your brand website because they saw the brand on Amazon? So uh, surprisingly, we don't get that, mm. that information. I, in fact, I, we don't. I think they would give it to us, but I, I could be off. I got to check on that. 
I don't think we get that information um, offhand. Um, I'm not sure if I care, to be honest, only because if you're going to shop for our shirt, we don't have our full inventory role on Amazon. Right. If you want to explore other categories or some categories we don't even sell on Amazon, um, you're going to go to, to a store, you're going to go to the website. Um, and ultimately, all I care about is that you were able to find what you wanted, like quickly, easily, and painless. And mm -hmm. so if that means it was on Amazon, I'm happy because you're happy. If that means that you went from Amazon to, to Untuck It directly, am I thinking about the the fact that we make a better margin selling through ourselves than selling through a third party. Honestly, no, it mm -hmm. doesn't. It goes to your overall kind of customer growth and, and customer um, lifetime value. Right. But speaking of exposure, you mentioned Facebook. Uh, obviously, we have kind of come to a point, I think, in the, if you look at where retail is right now, it's kind of like an era of, of DTC brands that has gone through an evolution of you know, tactics and, and strategies to mm -hmm. get like a massive amounts of customers at once, and I, I, I there are things that work to varying degrees. But it seems like the the easy pipes are, are closed now. Like you can't start a brand, put it out on Facebook. It, it just costs too much money. So how have you guys sort of differentiated the way that you acquire new customers and, and get the word out there, just to make it a healthy mix? So I, I still think Facebook is very profitable, mm -hmm. um, and there's there's definitely money to be had with with the right kind of Facebook strategy. Mm -hmm. um, we I'd like to say had a kind of soothsayer vision that life would become more difficult in digital channels. I think we did, um, but early on we started diversifying and we started leaning into radio and print and podcasts and ultimately TV. Right. And so we use a lot of what I'll call offline channels and we use it well because we've gotten really good at measuring the efficacy. And so ultimately what we've got when we talk about marketing spend is like somebody sitting at the organ and if digital is doing better, like for example, over the, the holidays, Facebook was crushing it for us. Like we are, no matter what we would spend, our CPAs were going down. And by the way, we believed it and we trusted the data mm -hmm. because we had three different data points that were telling us the same story. Oh, that's good. Um, we're able to shut down TV and pump our TV budget into Facebook and kind of optimize. Mm. And you channel stuff a little bit, right? You still have to be present in other channels. There is still a, a knock-on effect and a je ne sais quoi, like, impact that TV has on digital, so you can't shut anything down and, and not expect to, to completely you know, shock the system. Right. Um, but we will lean into the channel that's, that's performing the best for us. Mm -hmm. and, our marketing is, is built in such a way that we have that flexibility. TV can be canceled, mm -hmm. digital can be ramped up. Um, depending on what you're seeing. Depending on what we're seeing. And sometimes exactly. it is Facebook that's working the best. Sometimes it's Facebook. So this, this Christmas was, that was our Christmas gift, right? Yeah. We had <laughs> Facebook was doing really well and we have um, a, our performance manager, social media manager, Rhonda, was just crushing it on Facebook. She was doing all the right things, putting all the right assets, shutting down the right assets. Um, and just optimizing it, and it, it performed. We scaled maybe threefold in terms of what we spent on Facebook year over year, maybe even fourfold, while at the same time cutting CPAs in half. So, like, what we saw on Facebook over Q4 was amazing. What we know other digitally native saw just wasn't the same thing. I imagine some had our experience, and others said, man, it's getting more expensive. Right. It's crowded. Right. Interesting. Uh, and what do you think that you know, not you like you said. You don't have a ton of of investor cash. You've raised some, you raised some money, but I know not. I feel like a like, mood's going to kill me. So we raised thirty million. That's a lot of money uh -huh. um, last year. 
we put um, less than that on our, our balance sheet. So we put a, most of that, you know, came out as, as a secondary. So we didn't put a lot of money mm-hmm. on our books. So when I think about what we've done, even though, yes, we took in some investor revenue, some investor investment last year, it was really a, a little bit of that that went on the book. So mm-hmm. when people say, Aaron, how much money have you raised? I'll say, you know, less than $10 million. Right. Which, you know, is, is pretty tame when you look at other companies. It is, too. By the way, that's what I'm saying. It sounds like a huge number, but in terms of what our, our peers have raised and what I continue to see raised, I think it's, it's paltry sums. Right. Exactly. So yeah. it's all our context. Uh, do you think that having kind of a little bit of, of restraint in that, in that area has, and you are a profitable company. We are. Has that sort of pushed you to become profitable faster, essentially? Oh, by, by absolute yes, because we had to. If we, we again, when we started, I, I don't know if we went into the beginning, but we raised, the, I, I don't know if I mentioned, $150,000. So mm-hmm. you make a few shirts, you hire a few consultants, that, that money's gone. Um, but we had to continue, right? right? So Chris and I were working full-time jobs, which was fortunate, so we didn't have to pay ourselves anything. And as a startup, like compensation's probably your largest line item next to like cost of goods or something like that. So, so we were able to grow, but we were able to grow like because we weren't paying ourselves anything. Right. So, so we're almost out of time, but as we're, we're wrapping up, we're thinking about all these different you know, areas that Untucket is growing, the way that the, the company has evolved since it launched. What do you think it says about the, the, just the perception of modern, modern brands? I feel like sometimes you, know, you hear Facebook and like VC rounds, and there's all of this buzz around new strategy, but is it, does it feel like it's a real shift away from what, you know, what retail has always been? We've talked about in-stores, we talked about online. I think the only, like, what, what do you think is new now that marks a modern retail strategy? So I think, I think a modern retail strategy includes physical retail. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that'll play itself out more and more. And you'll see companies that swore they would never open a physical store. And, you know, that might be two to three that have converted. Mm -hmm. And I think it'll just continue. Right. Um, There's just, I think, too much opportunity to drill down on a single market, which the store allows you to do. Right. um, Then people are willing to to, to walk away from. So I think a a modern physical footprint uh, is is omni. Um, I just mean convenient. And so that includes stores, whether it's five or 50. That's brand specific, but mm-hmm. there will have some stores in their kind of general market where their customers shop. Um, how you get to your customer, that I think is modern as well. I think digital still plays a role. People are on their phones, I'm going to say, more every year and not less. So right. there, there's more opportunity. I think some of that will will come through things like SMS. And and so, you know, we'll, we'll see where that all plays out. But mm-hmm. my guess is you're going to get more texts from from retailers this year than they did last year. Great, and do you think we'll see more more digital brands with an Amazon strategy? Um, <laughs> Is that going to become the next so, in store? Look, I think I it, look if 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 I were a betting man, I would say no. I would say most digital stores want to define their own kind of strategy, and they want to make sure that it's something they can work with Amazon on, and not have any fear that'll be taken from. Right. And so I think the best way to protect yourself. Look, any company can copy your product it's very difficult to copy your brand. Right. And so establishing your brand first um, is number one. Like that will strengthen your your position wherever you want to ultimately sell. Right. Great. Well, thank you so much, Aaron, for, for chatting. Right, thanks, I really Aaron. enjoyed it. Uh, Me too. Yeah, thanks. And thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode. Special thanks to Gianna Cappadona, the producer of this podcast. 
If you've been enjoying the Glossy podcast and aren't a Glossy Plus subscriber yet, it's time to consider joining to get access to all of Glossy's content, member events, ticket discounts, Slack chats, and more. As a reward for listening, use the code Hillary25 at glossy.co slash plus to get 25% off an annual subscription. That's H-I-L-A-R-Y 25 at glossy.co slash plus. And as always, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Anchor FM and leave us any feedback you have.